Welcome to the Bioinformatics CRO podcast. I'm Grant Belgard, and joining me today is Peter Joyce. Peter, can you introduce yourself, please? Hi, Grant. Good to be on. I'm Pete Joyce, CEO of Greywolf uh, and co-founder of the company back in 2017. Good to be on the podcast. Great. We're glad to have you. So can you tell us about Greywolf? What are you doing? So Greywolf is a company developing small molecule inhibitors of uh, two enzymes called ERAP1 and ERAP2. And by inhibiting these enzymes, we're aiming to increase tumor visibility to the immune system so that we can promote the attack and destruction of cancers and act as a, a novel immunology therapy. So, so the company is, you know, we closed Series A funding in April of 2018, and we're excitingly in the last few months just nominated our first molecule that's now making its way through formal non-clinical development against uh, ERAP1. And so I aim to be in the clinic in the next couple of years. And if successful, where would this fit in the menagerie of oncology drugs? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question because immuno-oncology is certainly a very exciting and, and hot space. And, you know, the anti-PD-1s and anti-CTLA-4s have been game-changing in, in, in the area. And we see an awful lot of uh, very interesting approaches following up after the anti-PD-1 and anti-CTLA-4 going after various other checkpoints, for example, or... Uh, driving activation of uh, the immune system in different ways, as well as potential vaccine therapies. And, and whilst you know, no, no doubt some of those will be successful, there isn't really any, any therapy looking specifically at the tumor visibility problem, because what's apparent from these checkpoint trials and that have been running with anti-PD-1 and anti-CTLA-4 is is there's a there's a good proportion of patients that aren't responding to them that apparently the tumor is not as visible to the immune system. And that's where we think ERAP1 and ERAP2 sit, um, is, is the ability to modulate how the tumor is perceived and so that you can promote their recognition to the immune system. And so it would dovetail quite nicely with something like a checkpoint uh, and, and really get at that visibility issue. And uh, how large is that patient population approximately if, if uh, it works amazingly? Yeah, so... so the, the promise of an ERAP1 in, uh, inhibitor and an ERAP2 inhibitor in theory is relatively broad. So even in cancer types such as uh, metastatic melanoma or lung cancer, where these, these checkpoint inhibitors have worked particularly well, there's still a lot of patients that unfortunately aren't seeing that prolonged benefit, you know, in, in excess of 50% in, in those diseases where we are seeing really high, high benefit. And then when, as you move down, the kind of visibility spectrum uh, into cancer types that maybe aren't are seeing more kind of like a 20% durable response rate. As you can imagine, there's a, a lot of patients there that unfortunately don't see that that survival out beyond one to two years that, that 10 to 20% of patients are seeing. So it's very large, it's quite hard to calculate, but there's, you know, that's why there's so much interest and excitement in this space is because whilst there's a lot of exciting work that's happened, there's a lot still to be done. Great. And can you tell us a little bit more about Grey Wolf as a company, uh, how the company works, why you decided to to organize it in that way, and how it was affected by all this madness around COVID? Yeah, happy to. So, so, so maybe just introduce the company itself. So it's a company that, that I started with uh, Tom McCarthy in, in Oxford in the UK. We started it in late 2017. 
Um, I was previously at Vertex Pharmaceuticals uh, as a drug discovery scientist there. And the, the company itself is, I guess, is a, is a virtual company. So we, we don't have any labs of our own. We operate with uh, a number of different specialists, academic and contract research organizations. And, and really, we kind of coordinate and direct the, the research because, you know, drug discovery and development is so multifaceted. Uh, requires an awful lot of expertise and it, that, that's a hard thing for a very small company to have all in-house and we run the, the the company as if it were a project team inside a larger organization really making sure that uh, all of these different parties of which bioinformatics CRO is one uh, are all kind of working together with this with the clear aim of trying to deliver these novel therapeutics into the clinic and testing these hypotheses out clinically so so that's how the, the company operates on a day-to-day basis in in the context of covid uh, we've been remarkably lucky i think because because of that virtual nature we do have our own offices because we you know face-to-face contact continues to be very important and we do make a lot of effort to go and see all of the various different groups we work with in, in terms of trying to build up that project atmosphere. So COVID hit us in the way that obviously we couldn't meet face-to-face anymore, but we were all very well set up virtually to be able to continue to operate. And we're very lucky in the sense that it hasn't really affected any of our timelines this year, apart from things like Zoom fatigue and the, the usual things that I'm sure we're all suffering from. But we, we can count ourselves lucky in that we've not had to lay any staff off. The kind of the major objectives of the companies have all, have all continue to be met throughout the course of the year and, and we're excited as we move into 2021 in terms of the next phase of, of the company. Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of Grey Wolf? You know, when you were at Vertex, what led you to jump ship and, and do your own thing? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I was pondering this earlier t- today. So I initially came into Vertex as a bench scientist working on um, actually amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, so motor neuron disease. Uh, then then moved into more of the oncology space, working in immuno-oncology as well as DNA damage repair. And then latterly, I was working in, in rare diseases, which is the orphan genetically validated diseases, which is the, the major focus of Vertex now. And through that process, I, I think I was exposed to a number of other podcasts and avenues that kind of talked about this idea of setting up your own company. And, and I always thought that was something I would like to try in terms of the ability to mould uh, uh, a company's direction and dr- and drive it in the way in which you think it potentially uh, could work, and also the idea of that a small biotech has that potential to be very nimble, operate very quickly, uh, have very quick and efficient decision making, and so that that had always been percolating over the last couple of years at Vertex. And then Vertex exited oncology in, in 2017, and, and there were some interesting ideas in the literature, one of which was ERAP1 that I thought was particularly interesting and worthy of, of following up because it was altogether quite different. And so the two things really came together and obviously never set up a company before and didn't know how to do it really. And so spent my evenings and, and weekends trying to figure out how, how do you set up a small biotech company? And it was during that journey, uh, I think it was in 2018, I was lucky enough to have been introduced to Tom McCarthy, who's the exec chair of Grey Wolf, and been very successful in the biotech space, taking a small molecule all the way through to proof of concept in um, neuropathic pain and and then partnering that with uh, Novartis. And he was looking for his next kind of challenge in the space. And um, 
we, we decided to join forces. He actually made an initial seed investment in the company. And that's what allowed me to kind of step out of Vertex, get the company going. And then, and then we essentially became a double act uh, raising Series A to get, well, raising seed investment from signatures in addition to the uh, money Tom invested and then raising Series A in, in April of 2018 and really leveraging all of the excellent contacts and skill sets that Tom has in setting up companies to get the company going. And, and we've been working together ever since. Fantastic. What have been your biggest surprises on this journey? Probably the biggest surprise is, is how almost addictive it is, you know, running a biotech and, you know, as scientists, as we all know, it's, it's waiting for that next data point is always really exciting. That's always something that feeds us and, and, and is why we do what we do. And then you mix that with the aspect that the premise with, from which you decided to go off and set up a company and a, an ability to finance and get investment into that company. Uh, the, the two kind of come together, those two worlds come together. And as a result, it's very hard to switch your brain off because you love what you're doing. You're, you're really wanting to push to the next stage of development and, and investigate whether this, the idea is a good idea. Uh, and if it is, to really try and capitalize on it and push it into patients and test ultimately test the hypothesis out. So I would say, yeah, on a on a day-to-day -day basis, that's great because there's nothing like doing loving what you do. The other element is learning, learning more about my leadership style, learning how, how to kind of leverage deep expertise across the Grey Wolf team in the various different facets of drug discovery, drug development and, and operations to enable us to get the outcomes we want. And, and that's certainly a growth within me as, as I set up the company with Tom and continues to be an active area of development for me, something you, I think you can always get better at and learn from. So probably those are the two key things. That's great. So Pete, tell us where the name for Grey Wolf came from. Yeah, happy to. So as I, I do enjoy a bit of fly fishing, uh, which I do with my father-in-law, um, I've had many fishless days, unfortunately, but there is one fly that seems to be lucky. Uh, it's called a, a Grey Wolf fly. So it's a mayfly mimic. Um, and I thought, you know, I was setting up the first biotech company, you know, it was a bit of a lucky charm. So decided, and, and it was also a bit of a different name. So decided to call Grey Wolf, Grey Wolf Therapeutics as a result after that fly, although the spelling is is different for those who, who do Google it afterwards. That is really interesting. <laughs> I would not have guessed that. So let's go back to the, the, the very beginning. Uh, where where did you grow up? Uh, were you interested in science as a kid? If so, what 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 got you interested in it? Yeah, so uh, I don't think I, I mean, during kind of what we call primary school in the UK, I, I was particularly interested or not interested in science. My grandfather was a, a keen bird watcher. I do remember being fascinated by birds at a young age and just interested and a bit of a twitcher back at, back in the day, as you say. I think probably my interest in science probably really stemmed in secondary school and I, I spent a portion of my time in high school in the US in Atlanta and I had a chemistry teacher Tony Locke who was probably really the person who got me very motivated and interested. I always found science um, I was probably best of science out of all of the disciplines and he, he put it across in a way that I, I found it quite fascinating and interesting, interesting and, and, and ultimately kind of encouraged me to go down the biochemistry route, which is why I then jumped off and did my degree back in the UK. 
and I think from there, obviously, the, the step into the PhD, I kind of fell into doing a PhD in the sense of I didn't really know what else to do, if I'm honest with myself. And then as I kind of started working through that PhD uh, and, you know, as, as ever, waited till the third year before you start generating any specific results or data, it's two years of, of no results. That's when I kind of, the bug probably started to hit in a way in the sense of, you know, the idea that you're finding out something entirely novel here that people haven't really discovered before and uh, you get to kind of fra frame the questions that you want to ask. So, yeah, so probably that's how, that's how it started and then, then moving into my degree. And uh, on a bit of a side note, what brought your family to Atlanta? So my father worked in the cement business. So he's a chemical engineer by background always had moved around quite a lot because managing different um, cement plants and then ultimately being responsible for more and more plants. Um, there was an opportunity for him in the States. We actually almost moved to the Philippines before that, but uh, that fell through for a couple of reasons. But then we went moved to Atlanta and I was I moved at the age of 15 and came back at the age of 19. Nice. I guess uh, Atlanta is our nearest big city along with New Orleans. <laughs> Yes, I guess you're not too far, are you, actually, from, from Atlanta? It's all, all relative, not, not, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. not, not by American standards. <laughs> uh, yeah, by our standards, it's a long way. <laughs> right. so, so what did you do after your PhD? I actually, uh, I actually took a bit of a detour. Um, so I worked at Wyeth Pharmaceuticals in the UK, doing something very different and so not research at all. I worked in the regulatory affairs group, uh, working on kind of post marketing, uh, sorry, post approval, uh, marketing, uh, regulatory affairs. I think, I think probably if I'm honest at the end of the PhD, you know, there's always ups and downs during that process. And I wanted to explore what else there was potentially out there. And I wasn't really sure of, of what the next step would be. Yeah, took that job on. And I think I knew very quickly within the first four months that this was not what I wanted to do. It was really useful and interesting learning about that side of a pharma business and, and actually probably useful as we move into closer to the development phase of in Grey Wolf. But yeah, I quickly realized I wanted to get back into research um, science. And so from there, I went and uh, worked at the MRC in Oxfordshire at the animal unit. And I was uh, working on, that's when I stepped into motor neuron disease, uh, working in a highly collaborative group between the MRC and UCL at the Institute of Neurology in, in London, and working uh, at developing novel in vitro and in vivo models of ALS disease was the aim of, of the project. Um, and so I did that for three, three and a half years. What kinds of models? So cellular systems, but, but predominantly it was mouse model systems, and it was using uh, mutagenesis screen. So the place where I worked was a place called Harwell, and they used chemical mutagen ENU to essentially uh, drive a whole a whole number of point mutations throughout the mouse genome. Um, and then the job was really to go in and find genes that were interesting in the context of ALS that we knew caused familial forms of the disease. And I try and identify intriguing mutations that had been created through this mutagenesis. And we found some interesting ones in the SOD1 gene, we found some in, in the FUS gene, you know, so two genes that we know cause the familiar forms of the disease. And then the job was to rederive those animals and then phenotype and characterize them, as well as start to understand, you know, what are the potential uh, mechanisms by which ALS could be caused in those model systems. 
And, that, and the whole premise here was there's a number of mouse model systems that rely on transgenic overexpression. The fear in, this, in the field is always that they could potentially lead to artifactual effects because you're just driving such high levels of expression. Whereas this way was looking at endogenous expression of these genes to see, can you look in a more, I guess, uh, physiologically relevant environment to see if, you know, is the pathology the same as what we see in these other kind of transgenic systems? What about after Harwell? So after Harwell, there was a job advertised at Vertex. I, I knew I wanted to get back into pharmaceutical research. I, I, you know, I really enjoyed the postdoc of MRC, but I, I knew I wanted to get into that kind of applied research in the pharmaceutical space. And lucky enough that there was a, a job advertised at Vertex. So Vertex is a Boston-based company. They have research sites in Boston. And at the time, they had one in Canada. They also have a, a center in San Diego, and they have one in Oxfordshire. And so there was a, a research site there that was advertising for uh, an ALS scientist to come in and help with the ALS programs that they were doing. So applied, got the job, and was working on developing kind of complex in vitro systems initially to try and help with some of the drug discovery programs, as well as kind of driving new target ideas for the ALS programs. You know, ALS is a tough area for drug discovery, in all honesty. And, and I think you can see that by the challenging trials and things that are going on. There was a slight refocus, uh, and that's when I then I moved into oncology, immuno-oncology and DNA damage repair. And that site in the UK was was really strong in, the space, in that space, both in IO, but also in DNA damage repair, having put the first ATR inhibitor into clinical trials, which continues to do well now. So then, you know, we started learning an awful lot about immunology, which I found fascinating and worked and led some programs in that space um, before then transitioning into rare disease because of the transition of partnering those programs to Merck. And then, yeah, then was responsible for uh, helping build kind of the early programs in the rare disease space at the Oxfordshire site and uh, leading some discovery projects there. So looking back across all your experiences and, and education, what experiences do you think prepared you the most for what you're doing now and why? Uh, good question. I think, uh, I mean, I, I think all scientists go through that period where nothing is really working or you're, you're faced constantly with negative data. And uh, certainly the first couple of years in my PhD were certainly like that. So I think that kind of level of resilience is really important because you go through a lot of ups and downs in setting up and running a biotech. That is certainly from a personal perspective, is, is, it stands you in good stead. I think that was also kind of came through from, I did a lot of sport growing up um, and this, the same kind of getting used to winning, but more importantly, getting used to losing and being a good loser. You know, no one likes to lose, but I think you've got to do it. You've got to, you've got to get accustomed to it and pick yourself up and get on with it. So yeah, that I think that from a personality perspective is really important. I think that the, the other key thing that was, again it's a bit of a corny sporting analogy but it's also very very true in drug discovery and i learned quite early on at vertex was you, you can never know everything it's it's so highly specialized it's you know it's like being on a basketball team and thinking you know you can't be a point guard a guard and a forward that's just you know you, you, physically that's not possible so so you learn you learn what you can do but you learn enough about the areas that you can't do that you know what the questions are you need to ask or where you need to rely on other people. And I think 
as someone stepping out to set up a biotech, particularly in the discovery phase, I was aware of what I didn't know and what the skill sets I needed to bring in. And that continues now as we're starting to move through the development phase. There are people who know more about development than I do. Uh, and so it's about kind of harnessing everyone's capability and skills to achieve the outcome. Uh, so those are probably two key key aspects that spring to mind. And as you build a virtual biotech, how how have you balanced what you bring in-house and, and what you do externally? So as we are pu- purely virtual, the emphasis for me initially was trying to build that on the R&D side, I was trying to build that project team as would exist in a farmer organization and, and what we had in, in Vertex. And so that means you need expertise across each of the scientific disciplines, you know, biology, chemistry, DMPK, safety, toxicology, uh, formulation, CMC uh, at the appropriate points. In, in the virtual space that you don't need full-time employees across all of those things, you need to have expert people that can fill the various different roles as and when you need them to. And, you know, so a lot, a lot of the people we work with work on a consultancy basis, and then we have some more full-time employees or consultants working with us. And then the other aspects, which is really where uh, Kirsty, who's our chief operating officer, and actually is married to Tom, but has got a deep experience uh, in running tech companies, actually, over the last 20 years, you know, we needed to, under- we needed to be able to operate the company. One of the key aspects of having a small biotech was the ability to be nimble, was the ability to decision make quickly, make good decisions. And if the decisions weren't good, we can change the decision quickly. And that relies on having an operations area that that operates incredibly efficiently, because you've got to go through legal paperwork, you've got to go through the financing aspects, uh, you know, all of the investment agreements and everything, they all need to be done efficiently, but to the right level of detail. And so really, uh, we lean heavily on Kirstie and, and she's built up that aspect of the organization um, as we've gone along. And the two work in parallel and that allows us to operate efficiently as we go forward. Do you think you'll ever stop? Post Grey Wolf, what do you think you'll do? Yeah, probably do it again is <laughs> the aim. So I always really enjoyed time in Vertex coming up with oh, novel or different ways of um, approaching drug discovery problems or coming up with therapeutic hypotheses that you think worthy of testing and and really spending a fair amount of time on that target identification and, and what is a good target. And Stuart uh, Hughes, who runs Patheos Therapeutics, is a company we're also, I'm also involved with. You know, we used to work together a lot on, on that kind of um, aspect because getting that bit right is so important to everything else that follows. And so, yeah, I've always got an eye out to the literature and, and uh, academic groups that we work with and talk to about what could be an interesting possibility of a target idea, not for prosecuting now, because I think we've all got our plates full, but in the future, because ultimately, you know, it's not a chore getting out of bed doing what we do. We're ultimately trying to make a difference. Um, but at the same time, we get to do something that's very, very interesting. So, so no, probably. I don't think I probably will ever stop. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> so what would your advice be to current industry bench scientists who might be considering doing what you're doing now? What kinds of skills should they build? What kinds of, of potentially co-founders should they look for? So, I mean, the number one thing is be a bit of a sponge. 
and and always continue to be a bit of a sponge you can always do things better you can always learn you can always you know it's the, the adage of growth mindset and whilst it gets overused now is really really important there's always areas you can be interested in there's always things you can find out more about and it's not always with a view to be becoming an expert in everything it's with a view to understanding how everything fits together so I would say, yeah, have that level of intrigue and interest, be curious and, and yeah, absorb as much as you can on the kind of, on the specifics of kind of setting up a, a company, uh, at least in this iteration of Grey Wolf, one piece of advice I got quite early on uh, from a family member actually was to identify someone who'd been through the drill, been successful because there will be tough times, there will be difficulties, there will be things that don't go right. And, and we all know that as scientists, but even on the on the company and business level, there are always going to be challenges you're going to face. So having someone alongside you that has been through all of that before is a great source of help and benefit. And Tom and, and Kirstie, who's COO, they, they both you know, have, have lived that. And so that's a real source of help. And, you know, a problem shared, there's a problem halved and all that. So... Um, those are those are two definitely key things I think you should think about, um, and and then to be honest, the the third I would say is the why. Make sure you've got the why right, because you know in those times where things are difficult um, or challenging, you've got to really understand what why is it you're doing what you're doing. Otherwise, you'll find it very hard to motivate yourself and get yourself out of any issues and things that you're doing. You know, I think in our space, the why is quite easy. You're, you're trying to develop a novel therapy that ultimately is going to help patients. But you, you can lose track of that at times when things are maybe a bit more challenging or you're you're on your 15th Zoom call of the day. But yeah, I think that's another an important, important thing. I guess on that note, you don't necessarily need to go into, into specifics if you, you can't. But what's been one of the hardest things that's happened with, with Grey Wolf uh, since you since you started? Probably the, the hardest thing was, even though I was very, very excited about the next step, the hardest thing was finally saying and actually having those initial conversations with Vertex because it was a company I, I a, hugely admired. I had a lot of colleagues there that I really enjoyed working with and I believed the science was really interesting. So it wasn't like I was leaving a, a job that I didn't enjoy or or potentially wouldn't have a good future in. You know, I have two kids. I had two kids at the time. I have three kids now. Uh, at the time, my wife wasn't working because we just had our second child. And so the hardest thing was making the jump and the step. And some people thought I was probably a bit crazy and a bit mad, but it was always something I wanted to do and give it a go. So that, that was probably the hardest thing from a personal perspective. There have been hard things along hard things along the way. I think we've been very lucky at Grey Wolf because this the, particularly the ERAP one project so far has gone quicker than any other project that I've been involved in. And the science, uh, for the most part, continues to kind of prove out the idea founded in the literature. So, you know, there's been ups and downs. There, there always will be. But I think we've been quite lucky in the way that's operated. Great. What do you think is some common advice or conventional wisdom that's wrong or at least that has been wrong well in your career i think probably one thing and it was it's prompted by a book i read recently actually called range was i think in the, in the sector of science you can get caught up with being a hyper specialist with with really knowing 
everything there is to know about one thing and I think you, you that gets kind of drilled into you during your education really you get more and more specialized as you go to the point that if you if you start to follow an academic career you get really stuck down into into a niche and I think the beauty of drug discovery development space is you kind of have to have to lift out of that although even within that you've got this I this notion of a specialist always you've always got this notion of a specialist and I, I think in the experience I've had today is you no doubt need the specialists. You need them for what, for, for the particular areas and the particular depth of experience on a particular problem. But you absolutely need the people that have range. So people who are able to see the larger picture can, can take something from over here and apply it to something all the way over here, which you wouldn't connect if you're stuck down in a specialism. And so I think kind of conventional wisdom is certainly certainly pushes specialism, but I think we should be also mindful that there's an equal, if not bigger, place for people who can kind of see the bigger picture. And I would suggest that that needs to come down further into education in the early phases of education, because you know you see it with the with the top academic scientists; those are the ones who actually are seeing the large picture and can kind of connect these amazing collaborative networks together and do and ask some pretty fundamental questions because they've they've not gone down drilled into this tiny little niche so how do you think we accomplish that project based learning yeah project based learning is one one idea broader education uh, for longer problem solving as opposed to kind of just learning learning lots of different facts learning the skills for, from which to do that and education's going that way in a lot of respects but yeah, good, good question. Go. Oh, it's interesting. They talk about the the Roger Federer example or the Tiger Woods example, and the Tiger Woods example being a two year old that picks up a golf club and is, is fantastic and is amazing at it. But all he did was play golf. That's all he did. Roger Federer was pretty good at about four or five sports apparently up until you know his teenage years and continues to be a pretty impressive athlete and only really focused in on tennis later on. And he exposed himself or his family exposed him to multiple different facets for as long as they possibly could until he chose to kind of specialize. And I, I kind of that think that really does apply to our sector. Those people who are really successful and kind of develop game-changing therapies are the ones that can kind of see the bigger picture. So I guess that goes back to being a sponge. Uh, what do you think are some of the most effective ways to, to be a sponge? I think just some, some, some reading on the side through the weekends or trying to get very different work experiences. Um, uh, I think the first thing is figuring out the best way in which you learn. You know, some people learn by reading, some people learn by talking to people, because that that will be the fastest route to which you can be a sponge. You know, I, I obviously we all read as scientists; we have to read publications and everything. I probably learn faster by actually having conversations with people and asking questions. Uh, and then, just uh, I think I was lucky um, at the time in Vertex because was able was was uh, able to attend meetings kind of covering a broad broad range of topics and things and so just being a little bit pushy in a nice way to expose yourself to you know the different facets of whatever sector you are in to broaden your horizons i also think you you know i think we can get a bit workaholic so giving yourself some downtime letting your brain reboot whether that be exercise or 
whatever it may be, I think is is important. I think we all talk about it. Um, certainly there was a period during the first lockdown over here in the UK where it wasn't getting an awful lot of headspace at all. And then it becomes quite hard to have that kind of sponge mindset of, of trying to absorb and learn lots of things because you're not giving your, your head, your, your brain the time to download all of the things it's picked up. And uh, you, you mentioned Patheos earlier. I was just wondering, outside of Grey Wolf, what other kinds of things are you involved in and why? I mean, so Grey Wolf takes up almost all of my time. I do do some some advisory work with Patheos. I think it's a, a, a really cool idea and interesting idea of targeting macrophage conditioning and, and modulating the way in which they can go from being an immunosuppressive to a more immunostimulatory or, or pathogenic uh, macrophage. So, so I'm involved somewhat in that. Outside of that, from a work perspective, I, I, yeah, I'm just really focusing on making sure Grey Wolf delivers is, is my primary aim. I think in the future, I'd like to take on some uh, non-exec type roles or as, a, as we were talking about, thinking about what, what is that next company down the track. But um, at the moment, yeah, very much focused on the job, job in hand makes sense. It's all consuming. <laughs> I mentioned this in my, my email. I don't know if you've had a chance to think about, you know, an area in which you think most people are wrong or, or was that, uh, was that the range answer? I mean, yeah, that, that was, that was what I was thinking with respect to that is there's this focus on that type of learning I think is helpful. I certainly think about that with my children now, like, you know, not just pushing them down one particular avenue, like being a chess champion. It's, um, exposing them to multiple different things so that they can start to pick and choose what they enjoy and what they're good at. Um, often the two tend to coincide. But I did have an episode during, interestingly, during uh, lockdown. I think one of your other questions in the email was what kind of hobbies do you have and join most sports. I used to play a lot of table tennis growing up because uh, my dad built a um, table uh, for my old brother in the garage. And so I used to spend most of my weekends doing that. Um, about a year ago, we've got a garage or garage, as you'd say, in the US at home, and we bought a table tennis table for it. And during lockdown, I got quite excited because, you know, Walt, who's my eldest, so him and I would play probably most evenings, actually. It was a nice way of kind of having a bit of downtime. And he was getting pretty good. He was actually we're having some very, very good long rallies. But I realized whilst I was really enjoying it, he was starting to get uh, not enjoy it so much because I was because he started to get a little bit competitive. And I think he got a bit repetitious for him, actually, to be honest, as much as anything else. You know, and a part of me is a bit disappointed because, you know, I, I love table tennis, could probably play it 10 hours a day every day. But I had to acknowledge that it's not something that he uh, he loves as much as I do quite yet. So, Yeah, I guess it goes back to letting kids try lots of different things and finding what they like. Hopefully it's not just uh, some kind of social media. <laughs> yeah. Or video games. It's constantly video games in our household. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, th thank you so much for joining us today, Pete. It was really great. Thank you. Yeah, really enjoyed it. Good to speak, Carl.